When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Today, we have a very special interview with Adeline Grace to talk about Belladonna coming out August 30th. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so excited to actually like get to talk about the book now and it's close to publication day. So I'm really excited. That's the thing I feel like with publishing. So I, your book has been on my radar for what feels like a very long time. And we're uh, still kind of in that like last little bit before it comes out. So I'm very excited to get to ask you some questions before this comes out in a couple of weeks. Well, in about a month and some change. I think it's like six, six weeks. weeks. Yeah. Which is absolutely wild. I'm so excited. So to kick us off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Belladonna uh, talks about? Yeah. I like to pitch Belladonna as basically like a Victorian Bridgerton meets the mystery of something like clue or knives out. Um, it has, you know, this huge romantic thread. It has a murder mystery thread. It has fantastical elements. It's basically about a 19 year old girl who can see spirits and all of her life, those around her have died of strange and mysterious circumstances. So when she is whisked away to live with a new guardian at the mysterious Thorngrove Manor, she is approached by a spirit of the matriarch of the home who has just recently passed away. And everybody thought that she died of natural causes of just some strange disease. And it turns out as the spirit says she was murdered and it is up to the main character. Her name is Signa Faro to find out who done it before they strike again. You had me at Bridgerton and knives out quite frankly <laughs> with this book. I think that's pretty spot on in terms of just the vibe, but even more so it's this book is gothic. It's clever. There's some spice for our listeners like me who like a little bit of spice in their books. I'm curious where you got the inspiration for this book and for the character of Signa. Yeah, it's, it's funny. This idea has been percolating, you know, in my head for probably close to a decade now, honestly, in very different forms. So at one point, death was not a character. Oh, cause I forgot to mention to solve the mystery, Signa has to team up with death himself. Um, and he, at one point was not a character. This was maybe going to be a middle grade book at one point, uh, <laughs> which like you said, now there's spice. So it, it's very, very different. It had many forms over the years. And I actually came up with the initial spark of the idea back when I was working in live theater and we were doing a show called the secret garden. And you'll see a lot of influence uh, of the secret garden. I actually left some Easter eggs and stuff in with like character names as well. Um, and I was working as a techie 
and I was working up in the catwalk. So for anybody who knows like the spotlights on actors during live performances, they're usually manned by somebody and somebody you can't see unless you look all the way up in the rafters. And that was me for this show. And it gets kind of boring after a while because you've seen the show 50 times at this point. And my mind just started to kind of wander and I would look down and be like, well, what would happen if I just like fell, <laughs> if I just fell to my death? Like, would, would anybody, like, what if somebody could see me? What if I turned into like a spirit and somebody could see me or like, what would, what would happen? And it was just a very sort of weird question that, you know, you just start, your mind starts wandering when you're that bored and you're so used to something like me working on this show was just, you know, I had, I knew everything at that point. I didn't have to think about anything if the movements were mechanical. So it left a lot of time for my brain to just kind of wander. And it apparently wandered into some really dark, weird places. <laughs> That's so fascinating because Cigna, I see some elements from that inspiration story in uh, when we first meet Cigna. She's certainly an interesting character right off the bat from uh, the first chapter when we meet her as a baby, which is hopefully not a spoiler <laughs> for chapter one. Um, I don't, I don't think it's a spoiler. <laughs> uh, that's what I find. I actually find it really challenging to uh, not give anything away when we're talking to the authors, having been able to read the book early. I have so many questions, but I'm like, wait, that might be getting a little bit too spoilery there. Uh, with those details. Uh, so I'm curious, you said you had this idea for quite some time, what the process was like actually putting this story that you've been ruminating on for so many years, like on the page, did you write sort of in a burst every day? Like how long did that take? And what was that like? Yeah. So it was interesting. So Belladonna is not my first book. It's my third. Um, my first two came out, my first book came out in 2020 and then the sequel came out in 2021. So I actually started drafting Belladonna back when I was on submission to editors to see if anybody wanted to buy my first book, um, which is called all the stars and teeth. <clears throat> and I, you know, it was just to keep my mind at bay and not think about like, cause when you're that close to your dream and you're just waiting on an editor to buy it, uh, it's, it's a really tough feeling. Like every day is just such a stressor. Um, so I initially started writing Belladonna just as a distraction. And again, it was kind of in a very different form. It was very loose. I was just exploring the book more. Um, and then it wasn't until I think about two years ago after, uh, after all the stars and teeth and right before my sequel was about to come out, that I actually went to go try to sell Belladonna and present the idea to my agent. And we ended up selling it actually on proposal. So it's just a full synopsis, which means what the story is about, a couple pages, and then three sample chapters. And then from there, you know, now I'm on deadline. And now I actually have to piece the story together. So I completely rewrote it from scratch. And at that point, knew more about the story, knew I wanted death. Uh, as a main character, knew I wanted it aged up, but definitely not a middle grade. It is definitely on the border between young adult and adult. Um, so yeah, just, it was a long process of figuring out the ideas, playing with the ideas, but it wasn't until I want to say 20, late 2020 or very, very, no, it was, yeah, it was late 2020 um, that I actually 
worked kind of full time on this book and actually pieced it together a lot more. And what a time to be working on this book. I mean, the last several years have been a lot to put it mildly. I'm curious if your writing process, I mean, has, has that been impacted by anything that's been going on? Has it um, changed over time? This is your third um, published book. You know, do you sort of refine that process or is it just different every time? I think every book is a little bit different. Um, it's hard. Like I want to say that I have a process, but it's really hard to actually follow that process the same way for every single book. It was hard, you know, to write this book during the pandemic, especially the very beginning of the pandemic when it was still at its scariest. We didn't have a vaccine yet. Yeah, it was, it was definitely scariest during the start of the pandemic and trying to, you know, trying to work while watching the news and watching all the election stuff and everything just felt like an absolute garbage fire. So this book in a way was very much a distraction for me. It was, you know, it was a reprieve um, and just a way to turn off the news and turn off my computer and well, not my computer, but my internet and just write. Uh, So that was very nice. But I think a lot of times too, during the start of the pandemic, we were all like, if you're an author, like, oh, my day's not changed that much because I just sit in a corner and write alone anyway. But I think, and what I'm starting to realize now is that it has affected creativity a lot more than I think many of us gave it credit for. Um, So it's definitely led to burnout, I think, across the board. I think a lot of authors right now are feeling a significant amount of creative burnout and are trying to find our foothold again. Um, And publishing has changed a lot during the pandemic as well. You know, contracts have changed, payout schedules have changed, the way they promote books has changed. Now TikTok has surged and now there's such this like, (laughs) there's such this push if you're a YA author to be on TikTok and to promote yourself and to be even more accessible than ever, which was already so much in the age of social media. So we're all, I think, just trying to figure out what the heck is going on now and how to move forward from here because the landscape looks very different than it did. Exactly. That's, that's spot on. And I think what you've done with this book, in my opinion, is you've created that immersive experience. I read this and I don't know if you're an author who likes when people tell you that they've read your books really quickly, since it takes such a great amount of effort to craft them. Um, but I read this in a weekend. I couldn't put it down. It was so immersive. You really feel like you are at Thorn Grove. You're with the characters it was certainly a a reprieve um, from just sort of day-to-day life to be fully saturated in this story with these characters. They're very memorable. uh, And and this story will stick with me for a while because it's certainly unique and not, not like anything I've really read before. I didn't know I could find death hot. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you. That's actually, that's really great to hear. And I don't mind if people, you know, read it quickly. I know what you're saying though. I have friends who are like, it took me so long and you read it in five hours, but I think that that's a compliment if anything, you know, and I really am glad that it felt immersive because that was the goal. I think the book as a whole is, you know, at least to me, very much a means of escapism and just 
okay, let's, let's shut everything else out because the world can be a little scary. could be a little bit dark, especially right now. Um, and let's just escape for a couple hours or, you know, in my case, a full year that it took to write the book. (laughs) Yeah. And so you mentioned this a little bit, you know, the book is very, um, descriptive. It's very, I, it's very lush, like thorn grove, even in and of itself, you describe the sort of estate and there's a garden. I'm curious if outside of your um, secret garden Easter eggs, if the setting for Thorn Grove was inspired by any real place or if you took you know cues from from places you've seen to build that setting. Yeah, that's a great question. It's honestly, it's just, I put everything that I loved most in stories into this book. And I grew up, you know, I was such a weird kid. I grew up like listening to Sweeney Todd as my beach music on like a family vacation. Yeah. It was just relaxing. It was like, um, so just Gothic stories, strange kind of eerie stories have always been something that I really enjoy. So it's more just like, you know, I loved ball gowns and masquerade balls and how can I fit that into a story? And it was more inspired by like the movies I watched, the shows I watched, books I read and loved. Um, and just all of my, all of my favorite things in a story just shoved into one. I have never been able yet to go to Europe or to go to London, which it is Belladonna is loosely based on. It's not, um, I like to cheat a lot. So I didn't want to make it actually set in London during a specific year. It is more of a fantastical London. So I could have some leeway with rules and stuff like that. Since, you know, history buffs will uh, come at me if I tried to say that this was actually historical fiction. <laughs> so I've never been there. So it was very much just imagination and movies and shows. I definitely am crossing my fingers. I, I want to go one day. I would love that so much, but just imagination at this point and stuff like Crimson Peak and Sweeney Todd and all the, you know, romantic older time pieces. I love that you said Sweeney Todd, cause that's actually one of my comfort films. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm glad it's not just me. And I don't know why, because it's so messed up. Yeah. It's not uh, pleasant particularly, but I, for whatever reason, I find it really soothing. I don't know. So I don't know what that says about maybe both of us, but I am with you there. If that was some of the inspiration, um, especially Crimson Peak and Sweeney Todd, you definitely get those atmospheric vibes in this book. That said, how did you settle on the title Belladonna? Oh my gosh, it's so funny. Okay, so for some reason, okay, Belladonna is featured so heavily in the book, like from the first chapter, the second chapter, everywhere. So it seems like it would be the obvious title of the book. Uh, And yet it took me forever until I was working with my agent. And I, this was my second agent. So I queried this book. Um without a real title. I literally had in parentheses, I had some fake title. Then I was like, title, not final because I hated it. And I couldn't figure out what to name the book. And it wasn't until I was listening to a musical called Hades town. And there's this song sung by Hades who has the most gorgeous voice ever. Oh my goodness. It's so deep. And he says something about 
it's just a single line and he's like and his belladonna kiss and i was like belladonna <laughs> and i immediately messaged my agent i was like pete this is perfect belladonna this is perfect right and he was like yes this is perfect so that ended up being the title which is so funny because again it came from a hades town song and it took me so long to connect the dots of like obviously this book should be titled belladonna because it's featured so heavily I love that that was what put it together for you. How fun. <laughs> and there's, I don't know if this is a spoiler. It's not because I found it on the internet in many places. <laughs> that book two of this is going to be called Foxglove. Was that yes. title easier to get to? Yes, because I already had a theme and kind of knew, you know, the title, like what theme we would follow. Um, and Foxglove, I mean, is featured again, not a spoiler. It's featured from the very first chapter of Belladonna. Um, and it's, you know, featured more heavily in the second book. So I think it just it really fit thematically. I'm going to ask you about it at the end, <laughs> okay. but, but I'm, this story has a lot of really interesting family dynamics and relationships. There are a lot of people that, you know, it seems like aren't looking out for Cigna. She's gone through a bunch of different guardians. Um, she's sort of constantly put into these situations where it feels like she doesn't necessarily have somebody, you know, in her corner. And I'm curious what drew you to writing such interesting family dynamics. I mean, there's so many layers to the ways that she interacts with the different guardians and then her family that she's her, you know, sort of distant cousins that she's with at Thorn Grove. Again, what, what drew you to such interesting family, family, family yeah. dynamics? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, if you are part of a very normal family where everybody is just perfectly fine and nobody has, you know, some tension and there's nothing weird going on, then you are rare and you are lucky um, I come from a family of seven children and I'm the youngest out of all seven. And it's just chaos. It's chaos. Family is chaos. I have nine nieces and nephews and everybody just has such a, such their own personality. And I think that interesting family dynamics are just kind of family dynamics. Like it's interesting to explore, you know, there's two brothers in the book and they both fell in love with the same woman. And one of them got the woman, you know, they, they married her. And I think that obviously lends itself to some tension that lasts years and years and years. Um, there's relationships between the father and the son over a family business and each of their visions for it. I think that it's just a natural part of family dynamics because they're people at the end of the day and people have their own opinions. They have their own goals and, but you put them in a room together and connect them by blood and they can't really, <laughs> they can't really get away from each other. So it's just interesting to explore um, because there's a connection there. There's, you know, there's blood, there's blood there and you can't just get rid of that. You can't just walk away from that a lot of times, or it's harder to walk away from that a lot of times. So it's, it's fun to explore. And it was a really fun part of the book and yeah, honestly, it was one of my favorite things about Belladonna to explore Cigna, especially because she's an outsider going into all of it. And sure, she's connected by blood a little bit, 
but the one that she's most connected by blood to is, is dead. She is the, the matriarch of the home. So she kind of is thrust into this world and hasn't really had good relationships with family figures up until then, or especially parental figures. And the patriarch of the house, his name is Elijah, and he's trying his best, but he's not in a place to really be this father figure to her. He is mourning the loss of his wife in a very difficult way. He is kind of looking at all the decisions he's made throughout his life in a very different way and trying to figure out where to go from there. Um, and he's only watching Cigna and only takes her in because it's what his wife would do, even though he's not in a position to be doing this. So they're mourning, the family's super messed up. And I think the more messed up they are, the, the more fun it was for me, honestly. Yeah, that's really interesting because grief is a large part of the story. All of those characters are grieving something, whether it is the death of the, the matriarch in the family or Cygna's grieving, you know, different things that she's been through. Um, and they all process that differently. And sometimes they process that in interesting ways. Like Elijah, <laughs> as you said, like he, he sort of isn't particularly interested in parenting and ends up having like these wild over the top parties uh, that his children have interesting thoughts about, but they all sort of fall into different ways of coping. And I thought that was really interesting as well, because I think that's very true to life, you know, where we all process grief in different ways. And everyone in that family, you know, went through a similar circumstance, but they're all trying to reconcile with it in their own unique way. And, um, I guess one of the more entertaining ways that we see uh, them cope or Elijah cope is with some of these wild parties that were very nicely described. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're definitely fun to write. And I think it's just, True to his character, you know, and Elijah is actually one of my favorite characters. Um, he has a lot going on. He has a lot that he is dealing with and sorting through mentally. And that is his way, you know, of getting through it, but it, he still loves his family so much. And he is doing this because, you know, he feels like he's failed with them. And I won't get further into details with that because I think that his arc is an interesting thing to explore and why he's doing what he's doing and how he's feeling um, is central to part of the plot of the story. So I won't get too into details, but you know, he's, he's doing this because he loves his family at the end of the day. And it's, it's a very weird way to grieve, but I think it's a way that a lot of people end up grieving. It's a very, you know, normal thing in that world. I agree. And to take it to its completely unrelated note, this book has, I'm going to call it a little bit of a love triangle. (laughs) And I'm curious if there, um, for whatever reason, I was very slow to pick up on, um, Silas. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. The stable boy who were first introduced um, to early on in the story to bring Signa to Thorngrove. And I was really slow to pick up on anything about um, Silas. And he kind of has 
an interesting role in the story. I'm curious if that uh, part of the story where there's almost a little bit of a love triangle, there's different ways that the the romance could go, uh, what part of that, um, excuse me, when that came to you in the writing process or if that was always kind of there? Yeah, Silas was there from the very first draft. He was there from the very, very beginning. Um, even before death was a character, Silas was a character. Um, and he is very, very central to the plot and he's so much fun. Uh, I loved writing him. I loved the banter between him and Signa and just the mystery of, of Silas. And, you know, from the moment his character is presented in the first act of the book, we know that something's going on with him. Just his boots are nice and he's a stable boy, for example. And it's like, why are his boots so nice? And Signa's questioning, questioning it from the very beginning as well. So Silas is also his own mystery. So again, I won't get too into details, but you know, there's several mysteries in this book and Silas is certainly one of them. There are a lot of mysteries in this book and I don't know if I (laughs) expected that, but I was so pleasantly surprised by some of the, uh, the ways in which things go with this story. And I love, you know, the banter between them and that she sort of had a friend or an ally in the, you know, this place that she's new to navigating. So I thought that was a wonderful component of the story. And I just like a little bit of, you know, spice, a little bit of romantic (laughs) intrigue in my book. So I was happy to see that here. And I know that we talked about it a little bit. You mentioned, would you call this book YA or would you call it adult? I know that it's a little bit in the middle, maybe. It's tough. It's tough. And the second book is even tougher, to be honest. Like, I think that, okay, the reason it's tough is because for the longest time, there's been no middle ground between YA and adult. There's been, you know, a very small subset of books for 20 year olds, for 30 year olds. It, It tends to just go from young to boom college professors, at least it did for a long time. There has now been this wave that has started, you know, a a slightly younger version of adult where characters are in their early twenties, late twenties, um, which has been really, really nice, but it's been hard for publishing to figure out where those books go. Do they go in YA? Do they go in adult? And at the end of the day, I knew I just had to write the story that was most true to my book. And I didn't want to think about categories so much. I mean, you have to, to some extent, there is spice in the books, but it's not super risque. You know, it's not what you'd find in a super romantic book, you know, like a Karen Moaning book. You wouldn't find that Belladonna is not going to be like that. So you have to think about the age categories to a certain extent. But I wanted to write the story that was true to my book and kind of see where we ended up. And it certainly bridges the gap. Um, It has more steam than probably a YA book that people would have read three years ago. I think that there are some books that have certainly led the way for this. Like Serpent and Dove is an example that I can think of that really kind of opened the doors between this YA and adult space. And for a long time, you know, people used to call it NA, but the problem with NA, which is new adult, is that there's no 
bookshelf space. If you go into stores, I've seen a couple, um, a couple Barnes and Nobles have NA shelves, but until it really takes on, we're not going to get an NA section. So you have to call it adult or young adult. And I think part of it depends on themes. So for example, this is very much a coming of age story for Cigna and that lends itself a little bit more to young adult, but it's certainly on the gap. And I think that anybody can make an argument for it to go either way. Yeah. So that's interesting that you said it's even trickier for Foxglove. Is there anything that you're allowed to comment on? And I'm asking you this before Belladonna is even out, (laughs) but I know I'm just so intrigued and because Belladonna ends in a way in which I will not say, but I would like another book. (laughs) Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely another one coming. It's, um, hmm, what can I say about it? I will say that there's a new character who plays a very prominent role in the story. You might be able to guess who they are from Belladonna. And then I will add that it is not just Cygnus story in this book. And that's all I'll say. Cause I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything else. <laughs> I'll take that breadcrumb and run with it. How exciting. I'm so excited. And I know that's, I think that's so interesting. Like the nature of publishing, I'm trying to ask you about book two and your book one hasn't even come out yet. (laughs) Well, it's funny because in my head, book two is very much like, it's what I'm in edits for right now. Like deep in edits. I'm not even on my first round of edits. It's like round two. So that is very much my world right now. And that book doesn't come out for over a year. So Mm -hmm. it's just, and yet I'm promoting Belladonna, which comes out in a month, but I turned that in a year ago. So it is very, (laughs) it's very interesting to keep it straight in my mind too, and to not spoil everything. Yeah. I think publishing is so interesting, especially when you write these books with at a fairly quick pace, you know, having a book come out once a year is a feat. And so having to shift gears to, you know, what you have already written and what you're promoting and then what comes out next. I love it, but yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot at times because you can get a little too far ahead because of the nature of publishing. I really enjoyed this book. It was so good. And I'm curious if during what I'm sure is your limited free time, if there are any books that you have been reading or loving lately or authors, you always turn to, um, you know, things that you always want to read if they've got a new book out. Yeah. I, I just turned to look at my bookshelf. Um, I mean, I always will grab Stephanie Garber's latest book whenever it comes out. I'm super excited to read the bell, uh, the ballad of never after, which I actually have an arc of it sitting on my shelf waiting for me. That's what I'm going to read next. Uh, I'm really excited for spells for forgetting by Adrian young. I love her books as well. They're always, there's always like this bit of grit to Adrian stories, which I really love. Um, Emily Henry, I will read anything Emily Henry writes for the rest of her life. I am just, I'm close to the end of book lovers right now. Um, I cannot wait to finish that one. I actually listened to all of her audiobooks because I just like the way romance audiobooks tend to be performed. So I usually don't read my romance books. I usually listen to them, which I have to do it with headphones on because <laughs> I, I listen to it while I'm on walks and stuff and doing errands and 
one time I was listening to gods and monsters, which is the last in the serpent and dove series on a walk. And I didn't have my headphones in and it was just quietly on speaker on my shoulder. And all of a sudden we get to like this random steamy scene. I'm just putting it down as this children, like as this child, like riding his bike next to me. So uh, there's so many books. It's hard to just looking so many. We love Emily Henry over here. Um, she was on the podcast a few months ago and that was like a out of body experience asking her about book lovers (laughs) and her audiobook narrator, Julia Whalen was on as well. And so that was cool because she narrates so many different things. It's interesting to hear how they approach the different material from the, uh, you know, the narration perspective. It's a whole new I need to go back and listen to that because I'm super curious. And it's funny ever since I started listening to more audiobooks, because I honestly feel like that is how I get most of my reading done these days is through audiobooks. And sometimes when I'm working on, like when I'm working on Belladonna and writing, I'll be like, how is the narrator going to say this? I'll like pretend to say it in my head, even though I have no idea who the narrator, I mean, now I know, but when I'm working on it, like I have no idea who the narrator is going to be. I have no idea what their voice is going to sound like. In my head, it's like Signa was tired. How how would Signa was tired? How would she say it? So it's it's funny that it's become a little part of my process and how my brain thinks about stuff when I'm writing. I love that that all sort of comes together there with your interests, you know, as a reader and a writer and an audiobook listener. Is there a book that you've read either recently or like of all time that you would hands down recommend like the best book you've read, the best book you've read recently? Ooh, okay. I'll just do the best one or the most fun one I've read recently, because I feel like that's such an easier question because anytime anybody asks me like, Hey, what are you reading? My mind completely blanks out. I'm like, what's a book? I don't know what a book is. It completely blanks out, but I will say, and it's actually, I'm going to recommend an audiobook right now is, um, Nevermore. It's so fun. It's a middle grade story and it is kind of like, it's kind of like magic vibes of Harry Potter. Cause it's this magical school, but it's way more fun. I think, um, I love it so much and it is performed so well. It's actually performed by one of the actresses from game of Thrones. Um, one of the gray joys, I forget her name, but the, the gray joy sister, and she does all these different distinct voices. Um, all the characters sound so like they they sound like their own person and it makes listening to it sound like this mental brain performance. And it's really cool. And the story is so fun. There's going to, it's going to be a big series. I think there's only three out right now, but I absolutely devoured all three books. So much fun. I just looked that up. That looks so good. And Gemma Whalen is a, is, has a great voice. Yes. Uh, yes. Is there anything um, else that you draw inspiration from or like when you're not writing and editing, um, are there any TV shows or anything in general that you've just loved lately? Oh, I loved lately. I've been watching a lot of, <laughs> I've been watching a lot of anime and Spy Family is the cutest freaking anime I have seen in forever. It's adorable. And I think it's absolutely perfect for kids and adults because it just has such an, a good overall humor 
that is very, very enjoyable. Um, I watch, I'm not gonna lie, I watch a lot of anime. Uh, so that is definitely that's just it's I don't I wouldn't say I get a ton of inspiration from anime, but it's more of just like it's nice. It turns off the brain and you get to just focus on some fun things. As for inspiration, you know, I get a lot of inspiration from live theater and Broadway performances and stuff like that and songs. So for example, when I was writing All the Stars and Teeth, my previous series, there was a song that I was listening to on YouTube. It was from the Witcher 3 soundtrack. And it's just like this dark witch chant where she starts just like screaming and literally listening to that song. I was working on a scene and I was trying to figure out the main character's magic. And as soon as that song came on, I was like, oh, cool. It has to do with death and blood and some sort of sacrifice. It's just, it fits the song. So that song literally influenced Amora's magic in that book. And for Belladonna, I only listened to Peter Gundry. He's a composer when I was working on it. And those songs are very dark and gothic and it's all just scores. There's no lyrics. Um, well, in most of his songs, there's no lyrics. And I tend to get a lot of inspiration from that. I'm trying to think of live action shows I've watched in a while and I'm excited for, well, I wouldn't say I'm excited. I'm curious about the new Game of Thrones spinoff. And I'm only not excited because of what they did to us at the end of Game of Thrones itself. But I'm curious. Um, I watched Wheel of Time and I actually really enjoyed that. Although I don't think it's getting that good of ratings, but I really enjoyed it. So I would recommend it cautiously optimistic as well about the Game <laughs> of Thrones spinoff. <laughs> so I've seen that there have been a couple of really wonderful blurbs come in for your book over the last several weeks. I follow you on Instagram and I'm wondering <laughs> if any of those blurbs that have come in have been ones that have been surprising to you just in that the the author took the time to do that. I don't quite know how that process works of mm-hmm. soliciting for blurbs. But I'm wondering if there was anyone that came in that was just like a pinch me moment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so blurbs, the way they work is a lot of times we solicit our author friends and like, hey, I know that I already asked you to read my last 20 books, but can you please read my 21st and say good things about it? Um, But for Belladonna, we, you know, we reached out more and there's a lot of authors that came in that were very surprising to me, Um, like Jennifer L. Armand Trout. I was very, very excited. Renee Audier. Um, we got some amazing, amazing blurbs. Carrie Menescalco and all those people, like, I mean, some of them I'm familiar with, but I don't really know. And some of them I don't know at all. So it was always really exciting to get the blurbs from the people that you don't know who took the time to read your book and actually liked it and say nice things about it. And you're like, oh, it's not just my friends. <laughs> like because sometimes, I mean, your friends are great, but it's kind of like your mom reading your book. Like, of course they're going to say nice things about it. So it's always really nice when you get the ones that you don't really have a connection to because it's, it's them genuinely enjoying your book, which is really awesome feeling. Yeah, that's so cool. And I know that certainly plays a huge part in some readers who see which authors have given a blurb or they love that author's work. And so they, you know, give that, um, that bit of attention from the name recognition, but I love some of the comments 
from the authors that have come in because of course you all do such a great job at describing (laughs) the essence of this book um, and what it's about. I do want to ask you quickly about the cover. I Uh, always talk about the book covers because I love it. It's one of my favorite things. Obviously I know they say not to judge a book by its cover, but there are certainly covers that catch your eye more quickly than others. I'm curious how um, the inspiration or like where this cover came from. I know there are probably wonderful artists and designers at at the publisher's house, but if you gave them any like tips or where you wanted them to go with it. Yeah. So I am super annoying when it comes to covers. It is the (laughs) hill that I will absolutely die on. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of authors say that they, you know, they don't have control over their cover and it's true in many, many, many cases. Um, I don't know how I have been lucky enough, except I just get really annoying. Um, and I will literally, I mean, for all of my books, I send in probably like a five page Google doc of covers. I don't like styles. I don't like, um, styles. I do like artists. I suggest, um, ideas that I have for the cover. I, I send a very thorough, a very thorough document and I will get on Photoshop as well. And I am not an artist by any means. I learned to Photoshop though, back in my Neopets days when I was like trying to create Neopets web pages and guilds. Um, so, you know, that skill definitely came in handy because I will get on Photoshop. If they send me like a sketch or something, I'll be like, it's great. But what if we did this and change the color to this? And then we did something like this. Um, and I will be as annoying as I have to be to absolutely love my covers and it has definitely paid off so far. It's been really, really nice. And I do this for the US, the UK, um, <laughs> as many covers as I can get my hands on. And I have been fortunate enough that they have wanted me to love my cover um, and that they have, at least from what I can tell, appreciated my feedback. <laughs> so it's been really, really nice. And yeah, they sent over the artist for the US cover. Uh, her, name, her name is Alana. I might mispronounce her last name, but Mosky. Um, and had me look over her portfolio and her work. And it was very similar to, I had not seen this artist yet ever. I had not found them, but it was very similar to the vibes that I had sent over of other suggested artists. So it definitely seemed like we were all on the same page. Um, And then they sent over three sketches, very, very loose, like on paper, messy sketches of general ideas. We picked one that we actually didn't end up going with because then we got three different sketches from the artists themselves. And a lot of sketches are not sketches. They are gorgeous. They look like pieces of art that should be in a museum and they call them sketches. And I'm like, okay, sure. Um, you could slap this on a book cover right now and it would be amazing. There was some back and forth with the cover on if we wanted to have the character's full face or not. And I was very adamant that we did not because I thought it had more of the mystery. And not only that, but there are, like you said, there are steamy scenes in the book. There's a little bit of spice and she looked kind of young in the full art. So I was very adamant that we 
we cut that, chop it off, make her seem a little bit older and keep that appropriate and then just keep the mystery to it. So it all ended up working out for the best. And I really love the cover and the, the sequels cover as well, which is not out yet, but it's gorgeous. I love that. And I had a really hard time. I had a really hard time picking which version of your book to pre-order <laughs> because there were elements from both the Barnes and Noble edition and then the just limited first printing that I loved in both. And I'm curious how the Barnes and Noble exclusive came about. Yeah. I mean, that is a great question. I'm also curious. How- <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can say that the case, the, the white case and the purple case, um, the purple one's the Belladonna, or so sorry, the purple one is the Barnes and Noble one, and the white one is just the first printing exclusive. And the way we even got a case is we were in a marketing meeting, and I, I made a PowerPoint presentation about why I thought we should have a case. And I pulled up like numbers and stuff, and I made this whole presentation. And they fortunately thought it was a good idea. Um, and then I don't know exactly how the Barnes Noble one happened. I know my team was pitching it. I know my agency was pitching it, but also my street team took it upon themselves to go on Instagram. And because I always tell them, they always ask me like, is there going to be a special edition of this for this, for Indigo, for Waterstones? I was like, I have no idea. Ask, like, if you want something, ask them. And so they, they took that literally and they went on Instagram and started tagging Barnes and Noble every single day. Uh, asking for a special edition of Belladonna. And I was like, this is not going to go anywhere. And I don't know if it was them. I don't know if it was going to happen anyway, but about a week or two later, we got the news that they wanted the special edition. So it's so exciting. I love the special editions. I'm certainly that person that will go and get the different ones. Me too. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm looking at your shelf behind you mm-hmm. and your, oh. uh, <laughs> yeah. How, how many, how many, uh, editions uh, of house five, of sky and breath five. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. They, so you will collect different editions. <laughs> I will. I will, especially for books. I really like it's fun. It's certainly a problem. And this podcast has not help in <laughs> that, uh, because I also feel like I have to have all the books that I really like and mm-hmm. have them on the shelf, but I had a very hard time. And it's funny. I talk about the, the print books and the covers and stuff for a digital company. We <laughs> read your eBooks and audiobooks from the library, but, um, all that said, the cover art is certainly impactful when you're browsing it at your library online or in, you're in the physical space on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And That's I love me- the cover. Yeah, no, it's such, it's a gorgeous cover. Mm -hmm. And that's totally been me with uh, Stephanie Garber's recent series for both her UK books and her US ones. There's like an Owl Crate edition. There's a Fairy Loot edition. There's a Waterstones edition, Barnes and Noble, the normal. And I'm like, how many of these will fit on my shelf? (laughs) Getting a bit out of hand. I appreciate Mm -hmm. all the editions, but then I, I'm the type of person where then I feel like I need to have them all. Yeah. It's really interesting in this day and age how, I mean, it's like book collecting is a thing now. Mm -hmm. And I think people have always kind of, you know, like to collect books. That's why there's rare used bookstores. You know, that's why they exist in the first place. But I think that it has blown up even more and more now that you have a Lumicrate, 
uh, Fairy Lou, Owl Box. Uh, oh my gosh, Owl Box. I'm getting them all mixed up now. <laughs> Owl Crate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. And, you know, I like that Barnes and Noble started doing that as well mm-hmm. because we, I mean, we all, we all watched Borders closed. Like we're worried for our bookstores. And I think that ever since, you know, a new owner came and they started changing things. Now they're having all these sales and they're doing special editions and people are buying special editions by the droves. So I am very hopeful that we get to keep, you know, our, our bookstores. I agree. I think it's so interesting because certainly every people have always been reading and collecting books, but for whatever reason, and maybe it's the visibility of things on social media or like TikTok, where it does feel like everyone like discovered books recently. (laughs) Like everyone's really going out full force to go, you know, get books, like buy them, keep them on their shelves, go to their libraries. Like it really feels like people discovered reading and maybe that's just because we're seeing it so much more on you know the internet or that's just the no book sales are book sales are higher and it's actually really interesting to me so going back a little bit to what I mentioned about like anime so manga which anime is often based off of has blown up during the pandemic you walk into any bookstore you walk into Barnes Noble or Target they have expanded their shelves for manga to a severe level. And, you know, if that is part of what is getting people into reading, fantastic. Like that is absolutely amazing. And that, like, you can just look at the numbers on that and it is absolutely astounding of how much that has blown up. And I think that it, that has also helped drive more people and more, more young people, especially into bookstores. And it's really, really cool. I think that's definitely it. It's so fun for me as well, just to see more and more people gravitating towards reading and any way in which they can get, you know, their books in their hands, whether that's at the store or in the library. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know as we wrap up our conversation, if you have anything that you want readers to take away from Belladonna. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I've had to think about that question because I get asked it a lot for every book. And I think that, you know, I, I tried to look back and I was like, okay, do I want people to take away, you know, some of the lessons that Signa learns and like being herself and what it is to be a woman. But honestly, I really think, I don't, I don't think it's as deep as that. I think for this book, I just want people to have some sort of escape, I want them to be able to open the book or listen to the book or pull it up on their, on their Kindle and just kind of escape for a couple hours. That is what I use the book for. Um, that is part of why I threw so much atmosphere into it and tried to make it feel just as visually deep as possible to really try to, to suck you in. And I, I think that's all I really want it to be if people get more out of it I mean there there is more to it you know that there are definitely a lot of themes to it and if they get more out of it that is fantastic but if at the end of the day it just helps them escape for eight however many I have no idea how long it takes to read this book (laughs) for however many hours it takes to read that is more than enough for me and I would be very happy with that I love that because you can certainly never control what your readers take away. But I do always Mm. find it interesting to know what 
if any, there are intentions there as you write it. And I think the atmosphere in this book is very clear and was a huge reason why alongside the characters, I felt like I couldn't put this book down. Um, I don't know how long it took me to read it, but it did, it did take about two days and it was like in between moments. It was all I wanted to do for that time. So thank you for that. Oh, no, thank you. That makes me very happy to hear. And so I'm curious if um, you have anywhere that our listeners can find you on social media, what your um, tag, what I've completely lost the word. Handle username, your Instagram (laughs) handle. I suddenly don't know how to speak. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, I have basically everything. Like I have a Twitter. I don't recommend it. I don't go on there very much, except it's just an updates account. So if you only want updates, sure, go on there. Um, I pretend to be on TikTok, but I'm not really cool enough to be on TikTok. So I just kind of like am that weird 28 year old on TikTok. Um, and then Instagram is actually where I feel like a normal human. And that is where I am on the most. And that is, I want to say author Adeline Grace, I think is my handle. And that is updates that is, you know, writing updates or people ask me like craft questions and stuff. I'll talk about on there. Um, TikTok, I kind of just stare. Like if you just want to watch stories about what my books are about for my TikTok videos, I'll just stare at the screen and then put like some words on the side about my story. So if you want to watch some memes, head to TikTok, but Instagram is kind of where it's at. I will say I found your Instagram very helpful in figuring out all the different (laughs) editions of the book. So thank you. I'm really glad because it is, yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard to make sure all the information is out there. And I hope that I am doing a good job on Instagram. They just added pinned posts to your Instagram. So you could pin three posts to the top. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. So now I feel like I am ahead of the game. (laughs) Yeah, it was very helpful. And I enjoy some of the reposts of like fan art and all of those things. So definitely check out Instagram if you want to see what we're talking about. Thank you so much for your time today. Talk about Belladonna. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I'm really glad that the landscapers were not here very long. <laughs> We're quiet in the background and um, hopefully we can have you back when book two is out getting way ahead. Um, but be sure to check out Belladonna by Adeline Grace. This book is out August 30th. Thank you so much. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? 
Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.